So if you would stand for the reading of God's word, and uh, we at faith love the scriptures, and uh, we just recognize um, that this book is just paper and cow skin, but uh, the words in it are life-giving, and uh, they are uh, the word of God, inspired, infallible, and uh, we, uh, we just want to sit under it this morning. So this morning, I'm going to be reading from Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 23. So Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Um, if you, I don't know what uh, tradition you've grown up in the church, if at all, um, but uh, it's, it's a practice in some churches after the reading of God's word to say, as a people of God, thanks be to God. So we're going to thank God for his reading for the scriptures this morning. So I will say at the end of this, uh, this is God's word of which we will all respond Thanks be to God, because we are thankful for his word today. So this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I Paul have become a servant. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, before we turn our full attention to God's word this morning, I want to take a moment to lead us in prayer. Um, some of you may or, or may not be aware, uh, but there was a shooting the other day, yesterday in Buffalo, New York. Um, it took the lives of 10 people and put a number of others in the hospital. And we now know that the man who committed this act of violence did so because he believed in racial ideologies, racist ideologies that uh, deceived him into, into thinking things that are just are not true um, that, and made him act, in the, you know, led him to act in this way. He wanted to end the lives of people that he hated, and he tragically accomplished his goal before he was arrested. Buffalo is a long way from Manhattan, Kansas, and so it may seem odd to take time to, to, to focus on this real quick and just to, to say words on this, but I think that it's important that each time this kind of hatred, this racism, makes its evil known in, in our country, we need to be sure to call it out, and we need to be sure that, to say that we want to seek justice, and we want to pray for change. I think it's important that we make clear that as followers of Jesus Christ and as members of the Faith Evangelical Free Church community here, that we denounce racism, we denounce this kind of racially motivated evil. 
We need to take time to lament this tragedy and pray with broken hearts to the God that made people to be beautifully diverse in appearance and culture and background. We believe that we are all God's children, made in his image, and are therefore worthy of love and respect. And so I would ask you all now to please join me in prayer um, at this time. Heavenly Father, I struggle to know how to pray when things like this happen. My heart breaks for the families and the friends and the loved ones of the 10 people who have lost their lives and the many others that are still hospitalized at the hands of a man who is consumed by evil and lies. It is not your will that anyone lose their life because of how they look or where they come from. It is not your will that one race be lifted up above another to oppress another or to threaten another with violence and death. We know that it is your will for human beings to learn to love one another. We can celebrate our similarities and differences. We can praise you for the beauty and wonder of the diversity you created to be freely expressed throughout humanity. We join with the voices of many churches and Christians this morning in denouncing racial ideologies that lead to hatred, including the lies of white supremacy that the gunmen believed in, acted on, and terrorized a community with. We repent, repent from any shred of shared beliefs in this sort of evil. And we plead with you to surround the victims' families with people who will weep with them, mourn with them, speak words of comfort to them, and walk with them in grief and loss. Above all, we ask that your presence be tangible and obvious to the hurting and the frightened and the wounded of this senseless evil act. We beg you for an end to these stories. We plead with you for change in our hearts that we may be people who love all people as you love all people. And may it be that the followers of Christ in our country lead the way in declaring the senselessness of racism and demonstrating the superiority of Jesus and his love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, When I was little, uh, maybe around five or six years old, my family piled up into the van, brother, sister, mom, dad, and uh, set off for for a trip to the magical land of Colorado. Now, our, our, visit, our, our, our plan was to visit cousins and hang out in Estes Park, uh, drive up the winding road of Pikes Peak, because we certainly weren't going to climb it. And, uh, of course, we were planning on wasting money at gift shops, all this sort of classic family vacation sort of stuff. But more importantly for me, more important than roadside picnics or little knickknacks that I was going to pick up along the way, I was finally, finally going to be able to see the mountains. As a kid growing up in Kansas... I had been told that there were places on this earth where these little green hills that I thought were pretty big actually kept going up and up and up, and eventually so tall that the grass stopped growing and the trees stopped growing, and the mountain peaks became capped with snow and went soaring high above the clouds. And I had, of course, seen pictures and videos of the mountains, but now I was really going to see the real thing. And so as we cruised down I-70... My eyes stayed glued to the windows, just waiting for that first moment of seeing the mountains for the first time. Two things left me a little disappointed that day. The first is, as many of you know, the difference between western Kansas and eastern Colorado is almost undiscernible. (laughs) All right, you get to that welcome to Colorado sign, and it is just more prairie all the way around, which was not what I was expecting. The second problem was that, you know, we leave from Kansas City in the morning driving with a family, so it's, you know, supposed to be 8 to 10 hours, and you have your kids, so it's 10 to 12 hours, or however it is. We get there, and it's nighttime, and so I can't see the mountains. (laughs) 
All I could see was this vague suggestion of something tremendous and massive out there on the dark horizon. So that night, we unload the van, and I'm a little disappointed that I'd missed my chance to see the mountains that day. But the next morning, the sun rises, and I look outside. And in that moment of seeing those mountains for the first time is one of the most vivid and powerful memories that I have. I was absolutely in awe. I was wonderstruck. I immediately understood why John Denver wrote the song Rocky Mountain High about the beauty and the grandeur of those incredible mountains. This morning, our study of Colossians brings us to chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 that Logan read for us earlier. It is perhaps the most well-known passage in this letter because it describes the absolute supremacy and cosmic significance of Jesus Christ. Throughout verses 1 through 14, the Apostle Paul praised the believers in Colossae for their faith in Christ, for their hope in the gospel, and he gave some specifics about how Jesus and his good news and, and, and how it was impacting their lives. But compared to what he says here in, in these verses today, what he said before was just mere shadows on a dusky horizon to the incredible words that we read this morning. In verse 15, the sun rises and we are treated to a full, majestic vision of who God is who his son is, and their plan for salvation. In these verses, we find the truth and the tragedy and the triumph of God and his gospel. The truth that Christ is first in everything, and in him everything depends. The tragedy that because of our sin, we lose everything. And the triumph that now God, through Christ, has done everything necessary in order for us to be redeemed. I have to confess a sense, a feeling of inadequacy in preaching these verses. What is written in in these verses is a powerful and magisterial description of the all-encompassing greatness of God. Paul writes about the very cosmic mystery at the roots and foundations of the universe, about the, the meeting of our deepest needs and the mending of our most painful brokenness by a God who loves us. The nature of preaching is is to break things down into into little discernible blocks to kind of help you see the details and how they all fit together. But this morning, it feels a little bit like telling you about how tectonic plates over large amounts of time smash together to finally create the mountains when really what we should do is just go sit before them and and appreciate them and, and be in wonder of their awe and their majesty. So while we seek to better understand this passage this morning, please don't be distracted by the details in such a way that you miss out on the brilliance of what the Apostle Paul shares with us about who God is and why that matters. We'll begin by considering the truth that Jesus Christ is first in everything, and in him everything depends. In verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul goes back and forth between telling us who Jesus is and why it matters so much that we really understand who Jesus is. We are told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, some of you may be familiar with this phrase, image of God, because of its use in Genesis chapter 1, where we're told that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Being a bearer of God's image means far more than looking like him or or, or sharing some of the same traits as him. To be in the image of God means that we are representatives in some way of his authority. It means to rule, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, 26. 
So in the same way that kings would build statues of themselves to remind everyone who was really in charge, or how they would pass some of their power and some of their authority onto governors or leaders who are spread throughout their kingdoms, so too does the Bible describe God giving some of his authority to those who are made in his image. We are image bearers. You and I are image bearers. We have a responsibility to represent God and exercise his authority on the earth, which we don't always do very well. We'll get, we'll get to more of that here in just a moment. But this idea of image bearing is also assigned to, to Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, yet in a stunningly greater way than it was ever given to us. You and I and every other human being were, have been made in the image of God. But Jesus is said to be, he is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. He is the embodied, incarnate, manifest presence of God among us. He makes the invisible God, the God who is too wondrous, too holy, too completely other for us to fully comprehend, too glorious for for us to see or experience without becoming completely undone. Jesus makes that God visible by humbling himself to be bound by flesh and blood, just like us. In the Gospel of John, the importance of Jesus being fully God and fully human is made clear. In chapter 1, verse 18, John wrote, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Thanks to Jesus, we can finally blessedly get to know God. It is through God's Son that we may draw closer to the Father. Jesus is also said to be the firstborn over all creation. And it's important that we understand that phrase, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. We need to understand that metaphorically. In the same way that the firstborn son had certain privileges or preeminence in the ancient world, so too does Christ, the co-eternal Son of God, have preeminence before and above all creation. Firstborn is a title of sovereignty, not an indicator of having been created. We've got to get that correct. Firstborn here is a title of his sovereignty, its position, not an indicator that Jesus himself was created. To say otherwise is to argue against a landslide of biblical evidence declaring Jesus to be eternal and uncreated. Not to mention that the very next verse makes it clear that everything that exists, everything that ever was or ever has been, was created because of Jesus. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created uh, through him and for him. Christ is not created. Christ is the creator. If it is in heaven or on earth, if it's visible or invisible, if it exists outside God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, then Jesus had a hand in creating it. And just to be clear how superior Christ's position really is, Paul lists off these four categories that were commonly associated with with supernatural spiritual forces, thrones, power, rulers, authorities, even all of these are subject to Christ as creator and authority. They owe their existence and allegiance to him. After such a massive vision of who Christ is, we might be thinking, how could Paul go on? But in verse 17, he gives us even more. 
Because in 17, he says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only do we have Christ as before all things, again, affirming this, this vision that he is before all things, we've got that set down. Then Paul goes on to say something even more amazing. All things are held together in Christ. The universe owes its continuing existence to Jesus. That's how majestic he is. The universe owes its continuing existence to Jesus. Reality is ultimately not held together by things like laws or virtues or ideas or a mistake. Reality is completely dependent on and continuously sustained by one person. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This should make your jaw drop. This should blow your mind. This should create 10,000 times the amount of awe and wonder that the mountains created in little six-year-old Sam, at the, you know, when I first saw them. Take a breath. The only reason you can do that is because of Jesus. Feel something tangible around you, you know, the, 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 the ground beneath your feet, the, the cushion of the seat that you're sitting on. The only reason that exists, the only reason you can feel that, that you can know that, is because of Jesus. Think of someone that you care about. The only reason you can think, the only reason that you can, can care, the only reason that you can love, the only reason that there are other people that you can share relationship with, is because Jesus says yes to things like our thinking and our caring and our relationships and to people and to, to, and to the continuing existence of all that we know. All things in creation are because of Christ. And all things continue to exist only because Christ allows them to continue to exist. The magnitude of his majesty, of his sovereignty, of our absolute dependence upon him, it is immeasurable. In Jesus, all things hold together. The truth is that Christ is first in everything. And in him, everything depends. This is already a lot to comprehend, and yet there's more. Because in verse 18, Paul makes this, this interesting shift. And it might seem odd that all of a sudden, Paul starts talking about the church while in this, this cosmic description of who Christ is. But in verse 18, he says, He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So why did Paul think that this distinction of Christ as being the head of the church was so important as to, as to bring it into this time where he's mentioning Jesus' unparalleled position in creation? What is it about being the head of the church that makes it matter here? Well, so far, we've learned that Christ is eternally and sovereignly before all creation, and we know that he is preeminently above all creation, and we know that he is responsible for the continued existence of all creation, and yet we still need room on our just how amazing is Jesus list because he is ultimately the authority and the firstborn of the new creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus gave him the right to establish the glorious future for everything that is found in him. 
with the fullness of God and the mission of reconciliation. Jesus died on a bloody cross, only then to defeat death through the resurrection and forge an unconquerable peace for all things. The church is the new creation community that heralds this incredible truth. To be a part of the church, the local church, the global church, and in the, in the cosmic eternal church of all believers, it's to be a part of something where death is defeated and life flourishes in full, in full reconciliation with a God who loves us forever. Jesus is very literally the one who has all supremacy over life, over death, over heaven, over earth, over the past, the present, and the future redeemed, future to, the, the, redeemed, the fully redeemed future to come. Christ rules over all. You cannot find a better source for hope or salvation or glory than Jesus. The truth is that Christ is first in everything, and in him everything depends. And so the question you must ask yourself then is that if Christ is first in everything, is he first in your heart? It is an objective truth. Christ is first in everything. That is what we believe. But is he first in your heart? Really and truly is this awesome, astounding, mind-blowing, heart-transforming vision of who Jesus is and why he matters, is this the truth that rules over your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength? Is Jesus the one who defines your hope? Is he, is he the one that gives your existence meaning? Is Jesus the one who rules over your heart? For some of you, you may feel genuinely that, that you can answer this question with a very honest yes. And to those of you who, who say that, I would echo Paul's praise of your faith and his urging for you to continue in that faith. Choose to make Christ first in your heart each and every day. For others, you may feel that you would answer this question with, with a no or, or maybe saying, I don't know if Jesus is first in my heart. And to you, I would offer this encouragement. Let God hold your chin up, right? Let God lead your way, because this passage assures us that no matter how wayward or how far we may drift from God, how far we may feel now, at one time, it was much, much worse. Because though it is true that Christ is first in everything and in him everything depends, in verse 21, we are also reminded of the tragedy that because of our sin, we lose everything. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Remember earlier when I said we'd get back to the little problem of us not being very good image bearers? This is, this is where that happens. Paul gets really personal in verse 21. Once upon a time, you were alienated from God. You were enemies of God. You had a mind and a life that was full of evil behavior that you are responsible for. Our sin, evidenced by the evil things we do and say, causes alienation. It causes separation from a holy God who desperately wants to be with us, but cannot abide by our willful, terrible, rebellious acts of sin. The tragedy is most certainly our alienation, our insurmountable rejection and separation from God. But it is also the broken heart of God our Father, 
which lies shattered and scattered across the pages of our scripture and through the millennia of human history. When God created humanity, he called us very good, and we responded by rejecting him. When he tried to care for and guide his children, we responded by reveling in violence and murder and unspeakable immorality. When he described himself as slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, we responded with a petulant and fickle, prove it, over and over again, always hoping for more, but rarely hoping for him. When he tried to discipline us in love, we abandoned him for false gods and cheap idols. And when he sent his son, his only beloved son, to finally help us see him, unveiled to the world for the first time, we murdered him with whips and nails and unimaginable sorrow. This is our story. This is our tragedy. This is how we treated and continue to treat the God who loves us and the Son who created and sustains us. It's ugly. It's awful. And we need to feel the horrible weight of it. We need to ask ourselves if we can admit and confess that this is true of us. Both humanity as a whole and personally each of us individually are guilty of this kind of sin. We were once nothing but enemies to God. We have to be able to confess this. However, because God is so, so good, that confession does not have the final word on our fate. It is indeed an unspeakable tragedy that we lose everything in our sin, but our God is a God of triumph, not tragedy. He would not stand for his love to be snuffed out by something as weak as our rebellion. The triumph is that now our God, through Christ, has done everything necessary for us to be redeemed. The triumph of God is that he has done everything, everything necessary for us to be redeemed through his son, Jesus Christ. But now he has reconciled you, you by Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. God has reconciled us. He has taken the initiative to forge a peace between us and him by stepping up and paying the cost of forgiveness through Christ's redeeming death. This work is done. It is finished. And because of this incredible redemptive act of God through Christ, we are assured of one day being presented before God, holy, without blemish, and free from the tragedy of our sin. This is the truth and the tragedy and the triumph of Christ and his gospel. Christ is first in everything, and in him everything depends. Because of our sin, we lose everything, but now God, through Christ, has done everything necessary for us to be redeemed. So there is just one thing left for us to do. We must respond. We have to decide if we are willing to believe this truth, to confess this tragedy, and to accept this triumph, and in so doing, take on the task of keeping the faith. Paul tells us that the triumph of the gospel is ours, but only if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that I have and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. 
The task falls to us to keep our faith in Christ and Christ alone. There can be no other hope. There can be no idols, no competition to our devotion. God does not take lightly the sin of mixed commitment or half-hearted obedience. We don't have to be perfect. All right? God knows that we're going to struggle if we want to follow him. He knows that that's going to be a struggle for us. What he asks us to do is turn to nothing else, turn to no one else for our salvation, for our forgiveness. We cling to Christ, holding only to his gospel, and return only to the God that loves us in our repentance. So ask yourself, is your hope in God and God alone? Is your hope in Christ and Christ alone? Is your faith in the gospel what you truly believe is is what saves you, is what will save you? If you answer yes to these questions, then it means we must be vigilant about, uh, about uprooting the systems of sin and corruption and death from our lives. If we're going to claim to continue in our faith, we must be characterized by compassion. We must have a desire to, be, to both be and to make disciples who love God, love one another, and love their neighbors too. We must practice confession and seek to repent from any number of terrible things that we struggle with. We cannot hold to the hope of the gospel if we are instead holding on to things like pride or greed or lust or anger or racism or sexism or elitism or superiority complexes or permissiveness for what is evil and and continuing to pursue what is wrong. We can't hold on to those things and claim that we're also holding on to the gospel. If you want to believe the truth, to be free of the tragedy, and to live in the glorious warmth and love of the triumph of God, then you must take on the task of keeping the faith in Christ and Christ alone. Would you please pray with me now? Heavenly Father, We praise you for your triumph. The reason we gather here is to worship you for the triumph that you have done everything we need in order for us to be redeemed. You took a look at our sin. You took a look at our separation, our alienation, and you said, but I love them. And so I will do what it takes to save them. We praise you today for that salvation. We praise you, Jesus, for the continuing blessing of existence that we would continue to know you, to see you, to worship you, to love you, and to share about your gospel with others. Lord, please lead us all into a deeper appreciation of who you are and why it matters so much. Lord, please guide us in in holding to the gospel and to the gospel alone, to the hope of Christ alone shedding away the things that that are sins and holding tight to the thing that is true, Jesus and his love and his death and his resurrection. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.